Hi, it's Vincent here. Join me in person when This Climate Business goes live during the Auckland Climate Festival. I will be hosting a panel on September 29 and you're invited to be part of the show. Special guests include James Shaw, the Climate Change Minister, Sophie Hanford, the founder of School Strike for Climate, and you. We'll be taking questions from the floor, and there might even be some food and drink. So that's September 29 at KPMG in the Viaduct in Auckland. Visit thisclimatebusiness.com to register, but do it now because, let's face it, tickets are limited. And now, on with the show. Next month is the biggest event on the corporate climate calendar, the Climate Change and Business Conference by the Environmental Defence Society, the Sustainable Business Council and the Climate Leaders Coalition. You could say it's the CCBC by the EDS and the SBC and the CLC. And on the agenda are the ETS, the TCFD and of course the IPCC by the UNFCCC. Well, to explain all those C's, I'm joined by Rebecca Lowe, the Head of Communications at the SBC, and also by Antonia Burbage, who's the Head of Climate and Nature. Uh, what a great title that is. Uh, and Antonia has uh, experience not just in organising conferences, but she's had a long career in climate policy, working with the UK Department of Energy and Climate Change, uh, working here with MB and also the New Zealand Climate Change Commission and now SBCE. So, both. thank you. What is your favourite acronym uh, to add to that list, Antonia? Well, I think my favourite one is the WBCSD, uh, another C for you, um, which is the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, um, and they are a parent organisation for us. Yep. How about you, Rebecca? You're probably building on that, the... uh, ACBSD, the Australian counterpart, the Australian Business Council for Sustainable Development, just to um, keep your tongue tied. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is something about industries that just love the jargon, isn't there? But I, I was curious about your career, Antonia. Um, we're now seeing people who have built entire careers right from the beginning in climate. So was that your very first job working in climate change policy? No, I actually started in pensions policy. Um, I came out of university, I studied uh, geography. And um, I think one of the things I learned from my studies was climate change was going to be an existential challenge for us all. Um, and wanted to take that, um, that challenge and kind of uh, use my career to help address it. But um, when I came out of university into a recession, it uh, turns out that work and pensions policy was the place to be. So I, I started in pensions and then tried to leave that as soon as I could, which took me about 18 months to do. Um, but learned that an ageing society is a really interesting challenge too. But uh, yeah, then into climate change. Not dissimilar in that they are kind of major social shifts that they have to be managed over a long period of time. So probably yeah. some comparable kind of experiences. Yeah, and... Uh, it turns out that the more you learn about anything, the, the more interesting it gets. Um, so, yeah, fascinating as well. Well, let's talk about the conference because that's kind of on the agenda. It is the biggest um, kind of conference in the space. Rebecca, give, give us a quick overview of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So it definitely is. It's the biggest event of its kind, bringing um, government, business, community all together to talk about it says what it says on the tin, climate's happening um, in Auckland ne- next month on the 19th and 20th of September. And it is just a really key opportunity on the calendar to come together, figure out where we are, where we need to be and what we need to be doing to get to that space. The theme of this year's conference is delivering net zero. So it is really all about turning our attention to that action, to that implementation and um, whether we're doing it and whether we're doing it fast enough, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. It really seemed like compared to the previous years, which 
which was very much on the kind of what is government doing, that the mantle has shifted, right? You're nodding your heads, you agree with that. The mantle sort of shifted now to business and community. Absolutely. I think that business, um, I mean, particularly in the Climate Leaders Coalition and members of SBC as well, business are really um, owning what they can do in this space and they are really looking to push the um, push the boundaries and, and push further, go further and faster, and particularly um, in regards to SBC and CLC, how they can do that together to, to um, shift the dial more. Mm. Yeah. CLC, there's another acronym, but that's the Climate Leaders Coalition, which is a partner organisation or a subset? Yeah, so we um, we are the secretariat for the Climate Leaders Coalition. So that's a CEO-led um, organisation um, with CEOs who are committed to advancing both um, emissions, emissions reduction as well as work in the adaptation space. Um, the convener of the Climate Leaders Coalition at the moment is Jolie Hodson, the Spark CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, so she will be participating um, in the conference as well in our opening plenary session um, to bring that the business voice um, and particularly looking at that where are we and where do we need to go kind of conversation. Mm. It's really interesting looking at your membership. It represents a huge part of business. I think forty percent of GDP is what you quote, and there's uh, you know there's a, a large number of logos underneath that um, in that document um, that I've just been reading. And so it's quite important actually the voice that you have, and you've got your top ten pre-election wish list, which is. Actually, it's a great list and aligns a lot with, I think, what people are hoping for and expecting in in the climate change movement or climate change. um, uh, Yeah, I suppose it's a movement, isn't it? But let's just talk about two because we don't have time for all 10. But the one that there were two that really stood out for me, Antonia. The first one was the highest priority, which is maintain and uphold the climate change response architecture, which has sent a signal to the private sector about the trajectory towards 2050. And I think that's a really good sentiment. But to what extent is that under threat, do you think? I think that's a really good question. I think um, when we talk to business, one of the key concerns they they reflect back to us is that that need for certainty. And I think what we heard across the political spectrum was a commitment to uphold that that climate change architecture. And it's technocratic, um, this thing around emissions budgets and independent climate change commission. But I think um, if we've learned anything, I, I come from the UK, and if we've learned anything from that background, it's that um, having some... Um, so a, f- a framework, and I hate to use the word, but a framework that gives um, a direction of travel and a degree of certainty in terms of where Aotearoa New Zealand is heading means that businesses will continue to invest and to put money in. It means that families um, you know, can make choices that are aligned with where we're heading, whether that's buying an electric car or putting solar panels on the roof, and they, they, they know the direction that we're heading in. So I think for us... Um, we really wanted to reinforce across the political spectrum, no matter what the outcome of this election, that um, that continuing to point in the same direction really matters to to allow businesses to keep making those investments, and for our members, for that forty percent of GDP to keep pointing in to keep pointing towards a, a, a net zero outcome for twenty fifty. Business hates surprises, don't they? <laughs> so setting an agenda that is predictable. Yeah, sets out a pathway. Well, what are the kind of key components of that architecture? You know, what are the, I don't know, the, the acts or the institutions that have been created that would make up that architecture? Yeah, so the Climate Change Response Act is kind of the big piece of legislation and that um, sets things up around adaptation and mitigation and then a few pieces of um, institutional thing, 
architecture things like the Climate Change Commission that gives mm-hmm. independent advice that government has to listen to and has to respond to um, or, and to justify why it disagrees if it disagrees with the Climate Change Commission. Um, and I think that allows the public and business to have insight into why government makes the decisions it does um, and to try and influence those outcomes so that they're aligned with where business wants to go as well. I think Rebecca mentioned earlier that uh Business is moving here because it sees the rationale, it sees the risk, it sees the opportunity. Um, and so they want to invest into this area and government has an opportunity to, to help and to keep that moving forwards. And I think that's what um, our members are kind of clearly signaling they'd like government to do. Um, Rebecca, I'll put you in the hot seat. Um, <laughs> to what extent would a shift to the right, meaning National Enact, m- mean that some of these targets around, say, 2030 and 2050 and also these key bits of legislation, are they about to change? I mean, ACT have quite been quite specific about saying they're going to rely a lot on just the ETS, right, and some of these other mechanisms might be, I don't know, do, from your organisation's point of view, do you, are you worried about a change of government in that regard? I mean, it is a really interesting question and um, one that will be answered uh after the October 14th, I guess. But from our perspective, we've been really clear um, with all our conversations across all the political parties that we need to maintain the direction that we're in now and we may- need to maintain that momentum. And um, that is just really the message that we would continue to repeat um, in all those conversations. And as we move forward, we are heading in the right direction. We need to keep those signals consistent. We need to keep that consistency for business so that they have, as Antonia has said, yeah. the assurance that they need to continue to invest to harness not just the challenges before us, but the opportunities that they really see available as well. Yeah, right. So, and opportunities for new technology, um, new investments, whether it's in renewables or electrification. Yeah, I take your point. The the other um, one that's in your list, um, it's not just your list, Antonia, but the list of the organisation which represents these members, right, is around transport. Um, I'll just read what it says. Accelerate transport decarbonisation, both the light and freight fleets, Decarbonise light passenger travel through electrification, uh, decarbonise freight through optimisation, fuel switching and mode shift, etc., and decarbonise aviation. I mean, that really is that's the dream list, isn't it, of of actions? Um, we've got both main parties talking about roads. It seems antithetical to the, that list that I just read out. Yeah, yes, you raise a good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. Um, we're advocating for the decarbonisation of the transport sector. I think we all know that it's sort of, I think it's around 20% of New Zealand's emissions come from transport. Um, and there's a big opportunity uh, to significantly reduce those emissions um, through electrification as well as sort of alternative fuels as well. Um, I think, I mean, roads in and of themselves are not that's a challenging question, isn't it? Because electric cars on the road are better than petrol cars on the road. Um, and so the question will be whether or not we see that significant switch to electric vehicles and public transport and alternative um, sort of alternative modes. Um, we're doing an interesting project at the moment around heavy freight decarbonisation. We're on the um, working with MOT to look at alternative ways to incentivize or to enable businesses to collaborate together to decarbonize heavy freight. So I think there's opportunities um, to work within the system to help move the dial mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. That decarbonization is what a 
hydrogen thing or an electric thing or is it rail? What what makes up that solution? For heavy freight? Yeah. I think all three of those are options. Um, yeah, and so we're uh, working to release a pilot study that um, will look at a scheme that enables businesses to collaborate um, between the freight providers and the people who would like to decarbonize their freight supply chain mm. so that they can um, pair together effectively to, to kind of to optimize that. We haven't quite released it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I would, what I would probably build on what Antonia is saying is it's, it's probably also a really good example of um, how business and government can work together to find these solutions. Mm-hmm. And the partnership with the Ministry of Transport um, was really key to, and this is an, a pun intended, um, drive that work forward. You know, So it um, is an example of where um, business and government can come together to work in partnership to really you know, shift some of those big rocks as well or find some of those solutions. What would be the outcome of that? You know, what would what I don't know what sort of savings from an emissions point of view would that change uh, um, create? The heavy freight sector is about five percent of emissions total, mm-hmm. um, and so we don't know yet the scale of the um, the scale of kind of delivery from this particular scheme. But that is the size of the prize that we're looking at there. But I think just to circle back to your original question around kind of um, is building more roads compatible with um, decarbonisation? I think our challenge back to any future government is going to be. We know the scale of the challenge here. We are SBC, the Sustainable Business Council and the Climate Leaders Coalition, to avoid your acronyms. We're, we are standing ready to help. We want to help shape policies that help us meet those budgets and targets. Mm. We know that families and businesses stand to benefit from a decarbonisation of the transport sector. We are looking for creative opportunities to help shape policies that will do that. Yeah. Our door is always open for those conversations. <laughs> That's very generous of you. Um, <laughs> In Auckland and in all urban centres, but Auckland in particular, the highest proportion of um, emissions comes from transport, right? And and actually, the, this is sort of a delicious irony that um, the biggest impact you could have is getting people out of their cars, but it also uh, you know has a real benefit around health and around air quality and so on. What is it? Why is it? I guess the question is why is it so hard to get people out of cars? And you know, as a transport policy person, you must have wrestled with these questions and it's been successful elsewhere. What's Why is Auckland failing so bad? Oh, I'm not an Aucklander, so I have to start with a caveat there. Um, I think it's oftentimes it's, it's a behaviour change barrier and a convenience question. Um, I think it comes with it, re- the prerequisites as the provision of a good alternative, right? A better alternative. Mm. Um, and and it's a degree of, of carrot and stick. So you have to make it less convenient to get in your car and far more convenient to find another route, whether that's um, public transport or micromobility or, you know, some other form of transport. And so and I think it is also a question of, of urban form and urban design, which is not a quick fix. It's a multi-decade investment into the form of your city. Um, and that's housing and it's public transport. And then it's... Um, it's individuals making different choices mm. that are enabled by a whole systemic change. And that requires political will over potentially decades, yeah. right? It does take, I mean, it's complex and it's yeah. systemic is what you're describing. But um, there's a simplistic response often that comes from arguing with my relatives in, in the weekend. Yeah. Um, oh, we just get an electric car, right? Yeah. That, to, to me, that just seems like such a dumb answer, but 
am I wrong or about that? I think an electric car is an improvement over a petrol car. If um, it's an incremental improvement, I think it doesn't deal with the question is kind of what sort of city do we all collectively want? And if we all are collectively fine to sit in congestion um, into the future, then then that is an answer for us. But if you want a city that's radically different and that moves and flows in different ways, then just switching four million petrol cars into four million electric cars might not address the kind of changes that some people in society want. Mm. But I think different people want different things, <laughs> which is a, a very benign answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out um, they do. Um, yeah. To what extent can businesses and your members I've got in mind, um, as is a question for both of you, to what extent could they be doing more to change the urban form to reflect the kind of change we need around transport in particular? And I'm really thinking of Auckland because that's where the low-hanging fruit is to get change in transport. And I personally don't see businesses taking a forefront, but maybe you do. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that climate change, um, the perspectives of climate change looking towards 2050 and 2100 uh, encourage businesses and communities to think in a slightly different way because you are thinking out into the future, right? You're thinking about not just yourself, but your future generations and the kind of world that you want them to live in. And so I think that encourages people and businesses, in including some of our members, to break the mold of kind of that um, natural inclination to think, I do this this way, it's the way I've always done it. And so I can make an incremental improvement on the way that I've always done things, which is, f you know, for a vehicle to be more efficient, but Instead, what you're asking me is, can we get out of the vehicle? Mm. Or can I only use the vehicle when I really need it to? Which means, you know, when I need to drop my kids to football and it's the other side of the city, what is the best way for me to do that? And what does a fundamentally different city look like in a way that delivers the services that everybody still needs? But that also means that we have better health outcomes and shorter journey times across our cities and all the other kind of benefits that people are looking for. So I think... I mean, the whole climate change looks towards 2050 or 2100, and that encourages that kind of thinking that says, but what if we don't do it the way we've always done it? To and you're saying that only a small number of organisations have that vision or are incentivized to think that long term. Yeah, I think that kind of innovative thinking is, is it requires a slight shift in your, in your brain. And I think a lot of businesses are doing the best that they can, they can within the, the boundaries that they operate. Yeah. And I think some businesses are definitely thinking in that that way. Mm. And I guess, I mean, it, it's a little bit outside of the transport piece, but to some extent, um, you know, a number of businesses are being forced to change the way they think with climate-related disclosures coming into play, right? And they're having to do climate-related scenarios for the first time and actually think about the future in a way right. that they haven't done before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is challenging businesses to suddenly start to think differently about yeah. what's coming down and what is coming in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, such a good point, uh, Rebecca. When you, I read that report by the tourism sector about predicting, oh, they had to do three scenarios, 1.5, 2, and I think maybe 4 or, or yeah. 3 degree warming. And suddenly a whole lot of things look quite different, right? And there, there's probably a lot of wishful thinking that goes on without having – to, without doing that report, you know, people will carry on with incremental change. But if there's no snow, what does that mean if you're Wanaka? Absolutely. Or Awakuni, or I mean, Awakuni's already 
wrestling with that. So yeah, it's such a good point. So it's, it's a real push-pull yeah. thing, isn't it, of government asking people, asking business to do things, business responding. Um, we just wish it could be a bit faster. Yeah. <laughs> and I also think Auckland going through the events that it has over the last year changes the communities of Auckland and their understanding of what climate change means for the city. And I think that that brings with it a social license and a, and a, a questioning of kind of what does this look like for us and what will our city look like in 30 years' time mm. from a kind of adaptation perspective as well. well I hope so. I hope you're right. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the emissions trading scheme uh, because, you know, why wouldn't you? Um, so the emissions trading scheme is up for review at the moment. The Ministry for the Environment, I think, has asked for... A, rev- a review and has put forward a draft paper and you've made a submission on it, well, I say you as in the organisation. Um, we're going to stay um, pleasingly superficial in this discussion <laughs> because I'm no expert and um, I think we could do a good job though of just let's talk about what's right and wrong at a really high level. So we have an emissions trading scheme. That's good. Yep. Tick. Um, not every country has one and we've had one for a long time and it's got better but it's still not right. What What's wrong with it? What a great question. And I will start by saying I am not an emissions trading scheme expert. So Who pleased, is? <laughs> very few people. And maybe that's a, a question of um, should we have greater depth in it in New Zealand, given how important and how influential it is? Do we have a strong enough understanding about the emissions trading scheme and the role that it plays? Um, and should we strengthen our ability to um, to comment and get involved like should more businesses get involved in it um so what's right and wrong with the ets i think what's interesting to reflect on and what we don't often reflect on is that our ets is very unusual it is fantastic that we have one here in new zealand it is unusual that we allow forestry to participate in the ets um and so uh, that brings us to one of the first things and i'm going to start on the what's wrong side what's wrong with it is that um because we have forestry in there and the Climate Change Commission um, identified this issue much better than I can, um, is that we bring ourselves a kind of boom and bust cycle into our ETS, which affects the price. So the way the ETS is operating at the moment, we can expect a price collapse in the 2030s, which given that we are relying on forestry to help us meet our long-term targets, our net targets, which rely on forestry to offset some of our emissions, brings us a problem. And by us, I mean the country, a problem. So we need to do something to correct the ETS to make sure that it functions well for New Zealand to meet its long-term targets. Why is there a collapse in price coming? You're asking me a technical question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We know what the Ministry for the Environment has said about its own scheme. It is, and they say in their report, their review, it is cheaper for emitters to pay for their emissions rather than invest, investing in improving um, energy efficient. Um, so at the moment, the, the unit price is too low. Yep. Um, and also modelling shows, this is again quoting from the modelling shows that the unit price, that the supply generated by these forests may exceed the number needed by emitters. So we're talking about a glut, right? Yep. Uh, there's just so many trees planted that there will be a glut of NZUs. Um matching that um, oversupply of, of credits. But there's something kind of, there's two questions for me um, that I don't quite understand. Isn't it good, you know, that we're planting so many trees because they're doing the job of absorbing um, and and 
if there is a glut, surely there must be a mechanism of kind of separating that unit from the from the volume of trees planted. Is is that kind of like the solution that you're proposing? Yeah. So I think the fundamental question that um, the Ministry for the Environment MFE asked was, do you think that we should review the ETS? And our response to that was, yes, we, we do think that there is a case here to review the ETS. And um, one of the challenges the ETS has had is that it has been reviewed and tweaked with multiple times mm. over the years. And the, the issue with that is it undermines confidence in the ETS. And, and what you see, what we have seen, is that the price fluctuates and, and goes up and down every time it gets played with. Mm. Um, and every time that ministers comment or you know things happen in the market, the price varies. And that is a challenge for businesses who are required to buy units and surrender them because um, what you what you want is a steadily rising price trajectory for the ETS so that units become increasingly more expensive and peop- and businesses who are required to surrender are incentivized instead of buying units and surrendering them to to reduce their gross emissions mm. if that's what you believe to be a good outcome to reduce gross emissions if you believe that um, net is an acceptable outcome then it doesn't matter that we just keep planting trees to meet our right, objective. Right. And we will need to continue to plant trees because to meet our 2030 and probably our 2050 targets, we will still require more trees than we have today. Okay. So, And we also have international commitments as well. So it is complicated, but we, we need to have this review. But before we have this re- review and set the ETS settings, collectively, we need to decide whether we want to reduce gross emissions and have that as an objective or whether we're happy to continue on a net pathway that says we don't mind how many trees we have and we don't mind if they're radiata pine or native trees. We just want trees or we want more native trees. But these conversations haven't happened. And before you tweak the ETS, which is just an implementation mechanism, we should collectively have a conversation that says, what are we trying to achieve huh. from this policy tool? That's so interesting. Uh, see, I would have thought that the whole conversation about gross versus net was resolved, but you're saying it's not, that there, there is still a kind of question about whether we could continue to grow our gross emissions so long as we're offsetting, we're home and, and hosed. Yeah, and I think the Climate Change Commission has highlighted this, and it partially I think it comes maybe and that, yeah, from an international debate which says, how acceptable is it to plant trees mm. as your climate solution when they are quite quite risky potentially? You know, they're susceptible to fire. If you get big storms, they blow down. If you get pests or disease through them, then that's, then that's your carbon sequestration lost. Mm. So is New Zealand happy to take its... To, to sort of have an international reputation that says we knowingly and consciously planted our way out of a problem when it was exposed to these risks. Yes. And I think that's going to have to be true to a certain extent. The question is, how much do we want to rely on that? That's interesting. Does the SBC take a stance on that, Rebecca or or Antonia? Do, do you have a point of view? I mean, you've outlined the problem really well. Yeah, I think we do have a point of view. Our members have a point of view, which is they are um, they want to take credible climate action that is... Um, that has transparency around it and that delivers real reductions. And so lots of our members are committed to gross emissions reductions and taking action to reduce their gross emissions. And so they um, they are aligned with 
being clear, the, the country being clear about what scale mm-hmm. of gross emissions reductions required are. Yeah. Jeez, I, I really, that's such a surprise. I didn't realise that there was still that debate happening, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other um, tweak that they talk about with the emissions trading scheme is uh, this question of uh, kind of exotics versus natives and you throw in sort of biodiversity questions in there as well. Has SBC and have your members, do they have a point of view about that question? It's a raging debate in rural circles, right? There's And, and there's... There's a lot of emotion in it. There yep. seems to be a lot of misinformation. Uh, it's hard to kind of see the wood for the trees. Ha ha. Um, <laughs> do, does SBC have a point of view about biodiversity and exotics? Yeah, I think we're conscious of there are also treaty implications in there as well that are um, challenging. To, um, I think we do have a view. Lots of our members are interested in nature-based solutions um, and um, and in taking positive action on biodiversity given that it's quite linked you can there's a direct line between um nature outcomes and climate outcomes that the crises are, are linked and twinned so i think members are also committed to taking action across the both of them there are some interesting ideas floating around about if you were to split um if you were to split removals from the ets you know could you do something interesting there with the nature and with the biodiversity and mm. sort of other outcomes? But I think those are just ideas and concepts that are, are getting pushed around at the moment and are part of that live debate that's happening. Um, and our members are kind of a, a, some members. I mean, different members have different interests and things. So some members are involved in those debates. Yeah. Um, let's just finish talking about your careers because you've, you've both had interesting careers <laughs> and you've, you've quite you're in this space now. But um, it, are you finding that, let's talk about, for instance, compared to the UK where you have had experience, what, what did you discover in New Zealand? Are we advanced behind, uh, where, where do we sit in a global context on dealing with climate change? Um, there's a time element involved there as well. But um, I would say that um, New Zealand feels much further ahead on the equity debate in terms of bringing that, the just transition and the equity part of the conversation into climate change from the start, which um, I think is really important and hopefully sets us up for success a bit more than the UK, which added it as an afterthought. Mm. Um, so that has been an interesting development. Um, and then I think we have borrowed some of the UK structures for dealing with climate change, as have lots of other countries, but learned from those and improved on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am also hopeful that that improves our chances of dealing effectively <laughs> with this thing. I think what strikes me is that um, compared to when I started my career, all of the solutions, we have most of the solutions to the problems in front of us. It is a question of taking action and investing and political willpower. Um, and that kind of gives me hope, I think. Mm, it, this is all doable. Yeah, okay. That's quite hopeful, isn't it? What about you, Rebecca? Do you, um, you, You're a former journalist, so you... you um, have wrestled and seen up close a lot of interesting challenges. How, how do you see New Zealand's position in dealing with climate change? I think I would share Antonia's <laughs> cautious optimism, but that's what I say. Um, uh, there's a there's a really great analogy that our boss likes to use um, in terms of sort of our climate action, and that's you know scaling to a mountaintop. And I think um, 
we need to recognise that actually we, we've come quite a long way. The the top of the mountain still um, seems quite far away, mm. but when we look back, we can see we have you know we have travelled quite far, and we should um, we should hold on to that optimism and let it kind of give us the momentum we need for the hard part now to get re- right to the top. But um, I think we are fortunate to work in the roles that we're in and be surrounded by the businesses that we're in and see the um, the massive strides that they're taking and the way they are trying to kind of um, you know deal with the low-hanging fruit and our reach for the higher um, mm. the higher hanging stuff as well. And I think that um, if I bring it back to the conference, that's um, a platform to kind of really showcase some mm. of that leadership as well. And all of the topics we've discussed here today, you know, adaptation, ETS, um, transport. Uh, I mean, from my perspective, when we talk about climate and sustainability, storytelling, greenwashing, another big topic that's, um, you know, becoming into acute focus for businesses all, all part of the conversation that um, is happening at the Climate Change and Business mm, Conference. That's, that's um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it really does feel like we've moved quite far in the last five years from uh, – it was very hard to find a denialist now, for one thing, particularly in business, um, and and now we're into the action phase, aren't we? Are you finding that um, your conversations with members now are – they're at the kind of executional level, are they? Like, how are we going to do this rather than why we're going to do this? Yeah, and for some of them, not even how. They know their how. It's just a question of pace and timing and investment. And, yeah, is this good enough? Could we move faster? Who can I partner with? Who can I, who can collaborate with me? Who can I go to to do this better or faster? It sounds like people need to go to the conference to meet each other and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> compare yeah, yeah. notes. Um, how do they... Find the conference, Rebecca. Uh, so they can either go via our um, SBC website um, or check out our SBC LinkedIn page because there are lots of links there. And the one thing I would say is we are, as of today, at about um, 80 to 90% capacity. <laughs> yeah, so We'll be pushing it over yes. the line with this podcast, I tell you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So no, but if you are keen to be involved, and I would really say it is a great opportunity. I think that connection piece is really, really important. And um, you know, if you're keen to be there and make those connections, hear from those people firsthand don't wait to secure your place. <laughs> Very good. Very good pitch. Um, well, Rebecca Lowe and, and Tony Bubich, thanks for joining me on This Climate Business, wrestling with difficult ETS questions. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō.